0: Old Pilot's Plane Tales an Avon over the Thames A number of bridges span the Thames in central London, but none are more impressive or famous as Tower Bridge. Designed by Sir Joseph Bazalgette, its two imposing towers spaced 200 feet apart support a pair of spans with only 140 feet between them the lower of which carries traffic. An iconic sight in the city, it sits beside the Tower of London and joins the City of London to the South Bank and Southwark. It was 1968, and morale in the Royal Air Force was low. While Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, drank beer and ate sandwiches with his trade union chums, he also made sweeping cuts to defence spending, resulting in many cancellations – TSR-2, the fabulous new supersonic low-level terrain-following nuclear bomber, had not just been cancelled, the factories had been ordered to destroy the plans and smash the rigs. The F-111, ordered as a replacement, was then also cancelled at cost. Blames and criticism flowed freely between senior officers, the Ministry of Defence and the government. Feelings of uncertainty and division were felt throughout the service, in this the 50th year since the formation of the newest branch of the armed services. Celebrations marking the RAF's 50th anniversary had been cancelled to save costs, and feelings within the service ran high, no more so than within the heart of Flight Lieutenant Alan Pollock. To put it concisely, he was pissed off. Pollock was an experienced and respected officer. He had seen active service in the Middle East, served as an aide-de-camp to a NATO air commander, and had flown as part of the Yellow Jacks, the RAF's premier display team, which was soon to be renamed the Red Arrows. He was a fighter leader, an instructor, and held the rare exceptional rating as a fast jet pilot. He was currently a flight commander, flying Hunter Mark 9s, on No. 1 Fighter Squadron, the world's oldest military air squadron, based at RAF West Raynham. Born on April Fool's Day in 1916, the service was rightly proud of its short but splendid heritage. It was generally assumed that, on this historic anniversary, some form of pass would provide the highlight to a day of special events. The news that no celebrations would occur was met with anger and disappointment. Pollock badgered for permission to do a formal flypast, but could only get clearance for a leaflet raid on other units. Such hijinks were fairly common even when I served, and involved packing cards into an aircraft's various nooks and crannies to be dropped over other airfields in friendly rivalry at Christmas and other such times. After the morning parade, A number of aircraft were prepped with specially printed anniversary cards stuffed into the flaps and a good supply of government-issued toilet rolls crammed into the airbrakes. Low-level beat-ups and paper-bombing attacks were made over RAF Chivner and Coltishall, who responded over the phone with congratulatory calls. The ex-Vietnam F-105 USAF exchange pilot took out RAF Valley, but Waddisham saw red when clouds of shredded paper showered down onto their airfield, as they were expecting the air officer commanding's inspection the very next day. The only retaliation came from a pair of lightnings from Waddisham, who returned the compliment, even if rather inaccurately, over the wing dispersal. Pollock's disappointment remained, and he railed at the apparent disregard for the service. However, RAF Tangmere, a base with great significance, having been at the heart of the Battle of Britain, had laid on an excellent due for April 4th. The unit had asked No. 1 Squadron to return to its pre-war home after first giving the city of Chichester a fly-pass during their Freedom of the City parade. Pollock whipped in the hunters, ensuring their accurate station-keeping before filling in as the number 4 man at the rear of the box formation. En route, the formation performed over Brighton's air display and arrived accurate to the second over Chichester before giving Arundel Castle an impromptu beat-up on the way to Tangmere. As they taxied in, they removed their bone domes and wore boaters, a traditional part of the show. That evening, Pollock delighted in the hospitality of the mess which held a cocktail party and dance. The Duke of Norfolk and various high-ranking officers who attended all suffered a finger-poking from Pollock about the appalling state of the nation. Trying to get to sleep that night, Pollock remembered a fabulous solo fly-past he had seen as a boy when a lone Spitfire flew in celebration over London, across London Bridge, Downing Street and the Ministry of Defence, and he began to plan. The next morning he sketched out a route with timing marks onto a map and tucked it into his pocket. The weather was lovely as the av-pin starter on his hunter hissed, bringing the Rolls-Royce Avon to life. Still part of a formation, Pollock taxed onto the runway, carefully doing his checks and opened up the throttle. As he climbed away, he looked back to see his squadron commander beating up the airfield, and with no eyes on him, he slipped away from the formation and dropped to low level. En route to the initial point for his run over London, he was going to pass close to Dunsfold, the home of Hawkers, who built the very aircraft that Pollock was flying He adjusted his course and streaked overhead. His starting point arrived under his nose, the large reservoirs just to the south of Heathrow Airport, and he banked right whilst watching a stately 707 make its approach. Crossing Richmond Park, he picked up the sinuous Silver River Thames, and with bursts of power and judicious use of combat flap, he followed its winding path. Bridges flashed underneath him as he swept round over Wandsworth, Battersea and Chelsea. Crossing Vauxhall Bridge, he saw his destination, the familiar and splendid Houses of Parliament. Banking hard and with full power, he started to circle Whitehall and the historic seat of the British Government. With his Avon bellowing a mighty roar, he imagined how this would wake up the MPs and other august figures sitting chairbound beneath him, hoping this might slow the dead hand of government and the sickening cutbacks that threatened the Air Force. Within the Commons Chamber the message was certainly received. Debates were interrupted as Pollock's lords and masters "'gazed upwards towards the ornate ceilings, "'wondering what the devil was going on. "'He circled Parliament three times, "'and as Big Ben struck twelve noon, "'he straightened up to head for home. "'Dipping his wings to the RAF monument, "'he skimmed over Waterloo Bridge, "'the wonderful silhouette of St Paul's Cathedral, "'passing by as he concentrated on keeping low "'over the winding river when it suddenly appeared.' the matronly structure of Tower Bridge, there, in his path. His mind whirred, but to a trained pilot familiar with low-flying, this wasn't a difficult choice. He hastily jinked to line himself up, he only had seconds, and he slipped even lower over the water. There was considerable traffic on the bridge, amongst which was a bright red double-decker bus. With less than a mile to go, he gauged he could still fit through the small gap between the two spans and miss the bus. The steel girders seemed to explode about his cockpit, totally engulfing the canopy as he thundered through. For a heartbeat, he thought he had overcooked it and left his fin attached to one of Jet's most famous structures, but then he was safely through. Giving himself a new call sign. RAF-01, something that was rather lost on the air traffic controllers, Pollock got permission to beat up RAF Waddisham before winding up his Hunter to Mach 092 and dropping a mini-boom by popping his dive brakes as he passed over the American F-100s at Lakenheath. With very little fuel left, he completed his little soiree with an inverted pass over his own squadron's hangars at West Raynham Breaking down wind, punching the gear down, and landing. As his brake chute bobbed around behind his now very famous jet, Flight Lieutenant Pollock felt satisfied. He quietly walked from the aircraft as the engine slowly ticked and tinkled to a halt and wandered into ops to call his wife. He had some trouble getting a line as the apologetic operator explained that there were two lightning priority calls, and she was a bit busy. Back at the squadron, Pollock found his boss, O.C. Flying and the station commander, waiting, and he quietly confirmed what they had just found out. His boss was quite relieved that Whitehall wasn't littered with leaflets and toilet rolls. Finally, Pollock suggested that perhaps he ought to be placed under arrest. The press had a field day. "'What's the matter with the youth today? "'In my day we used to fly whole squadrons of aeroplanes through bridges. "'At Rouen, all of No. 1 Squadron Hurricanes "'flew under the transporter bridge, one behind the other. "'G. Plinston, squadron leader, retired.' "'We do not regard this as a joke,' It could have had serious consequences. There were pedestrians and vehicles on the bridge. Spokesman, Metropolitan Police. Suddenly there was the most thunderous roar. I looked up and a wump, a big silver jet roared by. I didn't get to see, I didn't get to see any of its markings. George Tapper, Tower Bridge Watchman. It was a bloody silly thing to do. Spokesman, Port of London Authority Please don't condemn or punish the daredevil pilot who swept across London. It did me and a lot of other people the world of good. I shall always remember the feeling of pride as I thought of that chap in control of so much power, and it revived memories of those wonderful fellows who during the war fought for our survival. Kakulum, Miss Daily Express. A Daily Mail reporter wrote Six MPs last night put down a commons motion on behalf of the Tower Bridge pilot, but later it was withdrawn. The MPs were advised the case against flight Attorney Alan Pollock was still sub judice. Four of the MPs previously served in the Royal Air Force. Flight International commented. The RAF and civil authorities were tussling last week about whether Flight Lieutenant Pollock should be court-martialed or tried in a civil court. His one-man fly pass was construed in and outside the RAF as an expression of resentment felt by many in the service, including those now responsible for deciding his punishment of the way the Royal Air Force is being treated by the government. It may be that the last straw was the cancellation of the 50th anniversary flypast over the capital on April 1. Pollock's squadron was soon deployed to North Africa, whilst he remained under close arrest. Getting a bit tired and bored, he soon managed to lock up his escort in his room and climbed out onto the roof of the mess for some fresh air. As a result, he was transferred to the RAF hospital at Rawton. Keen to have his day in court where he might voice his discontent, Pollock was upset to discover that, despite being told he was fit to stand trial, he was to be invalided out of the service. For a while he considered appealing the decision, but after some friendly counsel he realised that he had to accept Hobson's choice and that the government would surely take steps to avoid any public inquiry. Within a few years, Pollock found an ideal way to channel his aggressive fighter training and had a successful career in export.